This interview was recorded from home on October 27th and has been edited for clarity. As you'll learn, our guest, Jason Dorsett, president of the local branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, is a busy, busy person. We hope to have him back on the show in the future. Enjoy. More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Lisa Hildebrand. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight we are lucky to be joined by Jason J. Dorsett. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Adrian, for having me. Thank you, Lisa. I'm so happy to be here. You wear many hats, Jason, everything from a, an, an associate director for strategic communications. Uh, you're the president of the Corvallis Albany branch of the NAACP chapter, which we'll talk about later and advertising the Freedom Fund Day on November 6th. Uh, but and the obvious hat that you wear, which is why we're interviewing you, is because you're also a PhD student. And when you came to Oregon, you weren't a PhD student initially, uh, but you originally came from North Carolina. So tell us about the uh, kind of experience you had in North Carolina growing up there and how different it was coming to Oregon. Thank you. Thank you so much. And again, thank you all for having me. Um, again, uh, my name is Jason J. Dorsett, uh, and I uh, was born and raised uh, pretty much in North Carolina, uh, which I like to refer to as the Jim Grove South. Um, and it was in North Carolina that I not only um, really had a really were able to uh, figure out who I am as a Black male, uh, as a Black identified person, but to also learn alongside others that look like me. Um, my family, my friends, everyone is from North Carolina. And so I was comfortable in, in North Carolina. Uh, however, in 2014, um, I uh, was asked to apply for a position at Oregon State University. Uh, and I applied for a position here um, and I was able to land an amazing job at Oregon State University. Uh, and as I was sort of um, embarking upon my new employment opportunity at Oregon State University, I also recognized that uh, I had an opportunity to pursue a PhD. 
and being a staff member at Oregon State University, they offer really great deals. Uh, and so I was able to, I'm able to attend college, uh, well, I'm able to pursue my PhD um, for, for almost free. And so it was a win-win uh, for me. Um, but when I think about some of the different experiences that 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 um, I've had both in North Carolina and, and coming out to Oregon, one is really clear to me. And that was when I arrived in Oregon, there were very few African-American people either employed as faculty and staff or even people living and thriving in the community. Uh, and so very quickly, I learned that I was not in North Carolina. I learned that um, I was uh, one of few um, Black folk living in, in, in Oregon. Uh, and so as a result of that, I did experience a great deal of isolation. I experienced a great deal of loneliness. Um, and I also experienced some depression. Um, I started to question my, my worth, my sense of being, my sense of even belonging anywhere. Um, and so through my PhD program, I was able to um, really begin to uh, work with my faculty members um, and students to sort of try to help me develop um, some sense of, of, of self. Uh, and as a historian, I, um, I, I did pursue, a, I did earn a bachelor's degree in history. Uh, I decided to sort of explore and to um, look into the history of Oregon. And I discovered that Oregon um, was not only an anti-Black state, but it was also very steeped in uh, overall blatant racism. And so from there, uh, I began to um, uh, try to identify ways that I could flourish uh, and not only flourish, but kind of speak to what I felt within my soul was avoid this loneliness and to figure out why I felt, felt, felt so alone. And um, I discovered uh, upon um, and some amazing uh, um, a theoretical framework uh, called race space theory that in essence provides a geographical lens uh, to the work of, or the theoretical frameworking of critical race theory. And so my research as a PhD student looks at the perceptions of black uh, faculty and staff members that are employed um, at Oregon um, universities or colleges, uh, their perception of, of, of their campus climate, their perception of, of, of racism. Uh, and for me, when I think about race space theory and the significance of the geographic uh, places that we all come from in North Carolina, I experienced racism in a very uh, direct and blatant and uh, blatant way. Uh, and here in um, the Pacific Northwest, I've experienced racism in a very um, sort of subtle way. But either way it goes, no matter, racism still exists and I have experienced um, those, those forms. And so I said, hey, if I've experienced those forms coming from North Carolina um, and recognizing that um, black and brown faculty and staff members may not be from Oregon, they perhaps may be experiencing something similar. And so I decided for uh, the, the, um, the sort of, the sort of um, well, I decided that I would study overall campus climate, but more so black, faculty and staff's perceptions of a campus. 
All right. And so the the college you are in as a when you're wearing your student hat is not the same college or or I guess your um, I guess the department that you work in <laughs> is yeah. not part of a college, is it? It's its own kind of entity. Yeah, it's its own kind of entity. Uh, and so Oregon State University has a very interesting and unique structure. Um, you know, we have uh, uh, academic colleges, right? Um, <laughs> which you are a student, you're a part of an academic college. But for my employment, I work in student affairs or student services, right? Mm -hmm. And so within student services, we have a, a, a vice provost for student affairs that reports up to the academic provost who kind of oversees all of the deans in different colleges. Um, but I am, my employment had, I um, am a student affairs practitioner um, and uh, the department that I work in is called the Educational Opportunities Program. Um, which we are celebrating our 50, 52 years, actually, of providing support to um, underrepresented students. So here we define underrepresented students as uh, students of color, first gen, um, undocumented students, um, and students that um, come from sort of the uh, lower uh, uh, levels of, of the um, SES, so social socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. Um, and so within my employment role, I serve as a, um, one of our associate directors, uh, specifically supporting our communication and marketing efforts, uh, our messaging as it relates to the support uh, that we do provide to those students. Uh, I also um, oversee our Mel of Color Mentoring Program. It's called the Distinguished Scholars Initiative. Uh, which we launched back in uh, fall of 2015. Uh, we were successful in securing some grant funding from AACNU's program entitled um, Building Bridges to Success. Uh, and with that uh, uh, grant, um, they awarded us for two years, they awarded us roughly $20,000. And then Oregon State University matched that $20,000 with another $20,000. And so that really kind of helped us create um, a, a program specifically for uh, male-identified students of color uh, that will uh, address or seek to address uh, the low retention um, and persistence and graduation rates. Uh, in addition to that, um, I sit on several committees uh, uh, here um, at, the, at the institution, specifically any committee that has anything to do with um, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically race, uh, and to drive it home even uh, further, or I guess to drive things home to be even more specific, specifically uh, black, blackness, African-American uh, culture, um, African-American sort of mobility, um, overall African-American experience, uh, which also ties into my, my scholarship. So it's a lot of, 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 a lot of different um, opportunities and uh, work that I do, but it really all aligns quite, quite nicely. And somehow I'm able to make it, make it all work. <laughs> Well, on top of that, you're the, pre the the new president of the NAACP branch in yeah. Albany. 
Yes, yes. And I'll tell you, you know, even with that, it's, it's, it's such a joy uh, uh, and an opportunity. Um, my family, so I'm originally from North Carolina, Mm-hmm. Uh, and I moved out to Oregon in 2014 to, uh, uh, to pursue an employment opportunity at, at Oregon State. Um, and um, when I first arrived here to Oregon, uh, I was not only was I shocked just by um, the low number of African-American people of, of color um, here in the state, but you know, I went the first two weeks here without knowing anyone. Um, and I think I've only, my first two weeks, I think I've only saw maybe one other black person. Uh, and so I was, I, I, I realized that I was not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> um, and this was a whole new, 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 new sort of territory. Uh, and so I called my grandmom who is 82. And I said, Granny, you know, I'm not quite sure if I, if this was the best decision for me. Um, I'm a country person, country boy, uh, <laughs> and I'm seeing much more diversity. And so, well, she says, well, Jason, grandson, you know, well, um, find the local NAACP branch and, 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 and get involved. And I'm sure that there will be some black folk there. <laughs> Well, you all, to my surprise, make a long story short, I found the um, NAACP, the local branch here. And when I walked into the space, it was a meeting. I'll never forget. It was on a gloomy Tuesday night. Um, And I walked into the space and I saw one Black person. And that Black person was the president uh, at the time. His name is Barry Jerkins. Uh, I walked in. Uh, I sat down for maybe three or five minutes and I got up and I walked out and I called my granny and I said, granny, um, this is not the NAACP. I think I walked into a Ku Klux Klan meeting. (laughs) I was completely taken aback Mm -hmm. uh, because my experience is coming from the South, the Jim Crow South specifically, and being really um, aware and kind of brought up in, in, in or, or sort of raised by civil rights activists, very strong and prominent civil rights leaders in my family, my grandparents, my mom, and so forth and so on. Um, I, I, I had only experienced the NAACP a certain way in terms of their uh, demographics, their racial demographics. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I left. Um, and when I left, uh, I a couple of days later, I received a friend request on Facebook from the president. His name was Barry Jerkins again. And he says, hey, uh, I saw you, you know, come into the meeting. Um, and why did you leave? And uh, I said, well, uh, Barry, thank you for your for your Facebook chat here. I said I left because I didn't I wasn't sure if I was in the right space. And. He said, no, this is the right space. Uh, he then began to really uh, um, create an opportunity for he and I to develop a friendship. Mm-hmm. And through that friendship, not only did I learn about the local history of the NAACP, but he began to expose me to the history of, of Oregon. Um, and I was so excited to um, uh, pursue not only um, an employment opportunity here at Oregon State University, but to also eventually start a PhD program at a Research One institution. I didn't think to sort of explore or investigate the history of of a state like Oregon uh, with a very 
um, anti-Black and very racist, racist past and perhaps even present. And so um, kind of fast forwarding through there, uh, I eventually uh, stayed involved, but I always kept in the back of my mind, uh, uh, I was always really intrigued to learn much more about the history of, of Oregon. Uh, and so I began to sort of um, explore and research the history of, of Oregon. And um, I discovered that it was that it's also known as the white utopia. Uh, and so from there, I said, OK, um, this is a very unique place for me. Um, and how can I sort of build upon this sort of preliminary research that I was kind of doing before I actually was even admitted? Um, into the College of Education's program for PhD, um, I sort of was kind of doing my own sort of, you know, research on the side. Uh, and I began to recognize that the ways in which I was um, uh, perceiving or, 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 or the ways in which I was sort of experiencing Oregon had a lot to do with not only its sort of Oregon's historical context, but it had a lot to do with where I was coming from, which was North Carolina. Uh, and so from there, I began to sort of try to continue to make meaning of why I am experiencing um, this campus a certain way, uh, this state a certain way. And I discovered this promising theoretical framework that I live and probably would die by. It's, the, it's some theoretical framework, and it's uh, called um, race space theory. And in essence, what it does, uh, it sort of uh, provides a geographical lens to uh, critical race theory. Uh, and critical race theory, I know it's kind of been sort of, uh, uh, um, I don't want to say polarized. It's, it's been, um, what's the word? Uh, politicized. Yeah, weaponized. Yes, it's been weaponized now, it's been politicized, but in essence, critical race theory allows us to provide a racial lens to the history of these here United States. That's all it does. You know, it's like I said, it's been weaponized, it's been co-opted, it's been made into this gigantic mountain, um, but it's really simple and it's it's history. It's, it's, it's basic history. But at any rate, um, critical uh, um, race space theory as a geographical lens to critical race theory. And so again, for me coming from the Jim Crow South, uh, roughly 5,000 miles away from everything that I know to a place like Oregon, um, I quickly began to understand that my experiences or my perceptions of a campus climate or an environment such as Oregon was really steeped in my experiences back in the South. And so that's what race space theory does. It, 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 it allows you to first very specifically acknowledge the, the experiences that you are having from wherever geographical, you know, from wherever geographically you're located within the United States. Um, and for me, when I think about my experiences with racism or um, bias or any form of injustice in the South, it's very um, deliberate. It's very in your face. It's not passive. Um, 
You can be called uh, a racial slur in broad daylight. Like this, it's, it's, it, it, it is what it is, right? However, when you come out to a place like the Pacific Northwest with this culture of what they call uh, organizedness, uh, 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 it, it's almost as if there's, you experience uh, um, even the more sort of microaggressions or passive racist sort of um, uh, 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 experiences. And for me, I had to begin to sort of contextualize why am I feeling like this? Why am I having these experiences? Uh, and in addition to that, being the only black person um, here that I knew that I felt comfortable, uh, well, I mean, being the only black person here for quite some time, um, I, I struggled. I felt a great deal of isolation. Uh, and so after I arrived here, my first, after my first year, I kind of got a good idea of what I was supposed to be doing for my job. I had an opportunity to hire folk and I hired as many black and brown people as I possibly could. Not only within my own department, but I also became very involved in um, Oregon State University has a search advocate um, uh, program. And so I found myself serving on a host of search committees to hire faculty, tenure track faculty, staff, administrators, you name it. Because my goal was to begin to saturate this campus with more people of color one, because I was kind of selfish. I was alone. I was isolated, right? But for two, I know that whenever there is a diversity, specifically racial diversity within any environment, the entire environment um, is better. And there's a lot of research that, 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 that would underscore that. Uh, and so that's what I did. Uh, and then, of course, um, by doing so, I, I, I became more involved um, within our local NAACP chapter. Uh, I mean, excuse me, branch. Um, I got involved politically. Um, I serve as one of the advisors to our mayor here in Corvallis. Um, I joined um, a couple of other um, uh, associations. I started to give public talks and, and workshops to the Rotary Club, um, to the Democratic uh, organization, the Republican uh, Party organization, whoever wanted to listen. I was talking, you know, sharing everything I, you know, I, I could uh, with individuals. And so that has kind of led me to this place now where I am. I have a follow-up question about the, um, the Distinguished Scholars Initiative that you started. Mm -hmm. um, I read in one of the articles that I found about you online um, that you started a Centennial Scholars Program as well. I think that was after your master's or during your master's. Is right. it kind of built on the same framework? Exactly. It is built on the same framework uh, at North Carolina Central University there while I was pursuing my master's degree in public policy um, and administration. Um, we, you know, very similarly to Oregon State, uh, the retention and persistence uh, and graduation rates was at an all time low. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we uh, wrote a grant. Uh, uh, and we received some some monies from um, one of the um, uh, Department of Education, sort of HBCU uh, uh, grants that they would um, um, give out. And uh, that grant was around $400,000 for two years. Uh, and because of my position within the organization, North Carolina Central University, me being a, 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 an alum, 
Uh, we were able to really scale that program up really quickly. Um, and so that program went to uh, a pilot cohort of 25 students and me to uh, uh, well over 420 students when I left. And so we began to bring, we began to enroll new black and brown male identified students um, every year. Uh, and our and our cohort went, like I said, the core went from you know 20 some students per you know per cohort to a hundred. 100 per cohort. And so now we have, you know, two or at least 200 students, you know, going into the second year of the program. And we said, okay, um, how can we sort of continue to support students holistically? So both on the curricular side, as well as the co-curricular side. And our vice, uh, our, what we call them, um, vice chancellors, but in essence, it was, you know, the vice provost of student affairs. She says, well, okay, we have um, the housing unit under student affairs. So Jason, what would it look like if we took these 200 students and placed them in the same residence hall together? And so we created a comprehensive living learning community to where all of the students were all staying in the same residence hall for the first two years. They were taking courses together. They were spending time together. They were living together. I mean, they were doing everything together. And after two years, you all, this is such a success story. After two years, we saw a, a complete 180 in not only the students' um, GPAs and the persistence and the graduation rates, but the entire culture of the university began to, to, to change. We went from not seeing black and brown men engage in anything such as you know, research opportunities, co-curricular clubs, student clubs, organizations, we saw those same young men uh, become extremely involved in research, extremely involved in the Student Government Association. Mm -hmm. And all of those, almost all of those students, not only did they all graduate, but a lot of those students pursued higher, um, higher education degrees. So rather this master's degree, law, you know, a lot of them went to law schools and they're now all throughout the country and they are extremely successful and the program is still going on now. They are, I wanna say they're uh, on their 10th cohort. Still wow, that's incredible. And I mean, yeah, it, I mean, it sounds like if it, went, if it went so successfully, like what a great idea to just use that exact same framework, bring it here. Like, it's so great to hear that, you know, you got funding from the yeah. Building Bridges to Success that OSU matched it. Um, yeah. Because yeah, so much, so much is is tied to money to like kickstart things. But it sounds like that's already. You said you started that after your first year here. So is that now also already in its like sixth cohort? Well, well I started I started the Distinguished Scholars Initiative, um, and that was probably my, like my third year here. Oh, okay, okay. Third, third year here, and yeah, they are in their fourth cohort now. Yeah, uh, and gotcha. again, wow. Same thing there, like the retention rate is 100%, the graduation rate 100%. Um, and I just so happened to look at their uh, cumulative GPAs from last year and the cumulative, cumulative GPA uh, is a 3.1. Wow. Yeah, and these are students who uh, started our program in terms of the criteria. Um, you know, there's a lot of resources for um, sort of the, at risk, at, at risk students. Mm. And then there's a lot of resources for the stellar students, the 3.0s and above. And so I wanted to create a program 
to support the students that are kind of in that murky middle, the 2.0, the you know, 2.2, 2.3. So that's our target audience, but we do not turn anyone away uh, because we know as, 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 as sometimes as easy as it is to sort of, you know, have those high scholastic standards, one bad term can sort of drop you, you know? And so we're, we're kind of open uh, uh, in that regard. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like one bad class can tank your, yes. term, which can tank your whole. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I do want to ask a little bit more about your role in the NAACP and specifically ask you how you view the Freedom Fund and uh, what role that event uh, could have for, for the, and you call it the branch, not the chapter as an aside. Yeah. Uh, At the community level, right. And the organization can be a little complex. So I'm going to try to explain it. Um, so at the community level, we have branches, right? And when I say community level, I mean like um, in the city or in the county, those are branches. Now at the collegiate level, we have chapters. Mm. Okay. Now, um, back in 2015, a year after I arrived here um, under President Barry Jerkins, um, we were successful and also uh, with support by President, former President Ed Ray, um, we were successful in creating or launching or, excuse me, chartering the first um, collegiate chapter for the NAACP um, in the Pacific, Pacific Northwest. So we are the, the sort of pioneers and the first ones to create our own college chapter of the NAACP. So that's really a, a, a proud moment. Wait, the first one in the Pacific Northwest? Yes. Yes. It was like 2015, 2016. Yeah, 2015, February 11th, 2015. Wow. I mean, congratulations, but that, I mean, I don't know. I'm shocked and also not shocked. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you know how it, how it started, um, and I'm not going to, you know, bear, you know, bore you all too much, but how it started, kind of going back to like, you know, when I arrived in 20. 14. Um, are you all familiar with uh, Juneteenth celebration? Do you know what that is? Okay. Yeah. Well, people here, not only in the NAACP branch that I, I'm the president of, but even on this campus, there was no acknowledgement of what Juneteenth represented. Yeah. Uh, and so um, I held a program uh, just as myself, and I gave a talk. I was sort of providing some education around what is Juneteenth and why is it important. Um, and I invited the entire community, Lynn, Mitten Counties, Albany, everyone in OSU. And I just started talking about its significance. And after that talk, I had a meeting with the president, Ed Ray. Uh, and I was sharing with him, I said, President Ray, and this is before I was even really involved in the local branch. Said, so, you know, at my former university, we had an NAACP college chapter. Would you be interested in creating something like that? Again, it's not going to be easy. There's a lot of politics. But if I was to kind of like do the lead work, would you, you know, support this? He says, absolutely. And he's from New York. So he's a New Yorker. And so we have that East Coast connection, you know, <laughs> straight shooter. So we, you know, we were really, I really miss him so much um but so that's kind of how it how it started um i had his his sort of blessings and then i had to go back to the national naacp which is based out of baltimore and kind of 
figure out how to charter a chapter. Uh, and by way of chartering a, a college chapter, I had to have some oversight from a local branch. So that's where the local, you know, NAACP kind of came uh, came in. And then I kind of, you know, was advising the, the the college chapter and working somewhat working closely with the um, with the local branch. And then the college chapter kind of got up and running. I said, well, you know, maybe I need to support um, and get more involved as I get older in the branch. And so that's how I got involved in the branch. And um, I served as the vice president of the branch uh, last year for two years. So the two-year appointment. So I served as the vice president under Angel Harris um, from 2019, uh, uh, no, 18 and 19. And uh, no, no, I'm sorry, 19 and 20. And now the president, I'll serve as president for 20 and 21. Yeah. Gotcha. Sorry, we kind of derailed. Adrian had the questions about the Freedom Fund. <laughs> yeah. uh, because we asked about branch and chapter. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so Adrian, Freedom Fund. Oh, my word. Yeah, we are so, so excited, you all. I mean, we, are, we pulled out all of the bells and whistles this year. Um, it will kick off. We'll, 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 we'll start our program on Saturday, November the 6th. Um, and because of COVID, um, we're going to have a hybrid program. And so uh, we're going to host a really fun and, inter and interactive uh, reception right here on the campus of Oregon State University from, fourth, from 4 to 530 we're going to have live music uh, uh, by a former student uh, by the name of a former OSU student by the name of Jasmine Lumpkin, who is just phenomenal. Um, we'll have a dirge. We'll have um, a lot. A lot of people will probably be be in person. This will be a fun, a fun, fun evening. Uh, and then right at six thirty, we're going to start our virtual program in which this year we have the a phenomenal keynote speaker. His name is Dr. J. Luke Woods. Uh, J. Luke Wood, he served as the vice president and chief diversity officer um, uh, out of uh, San Diego State University, uh, in which his scholarship really looks at what he calls race lighting. Uh, he, he does a lot of work around um, why black minds matter uh, and really work with academics around how to reimagine the ways in which we deliver curriculum uh, that is much more inclusive and much more honest uh, uh, um, as we sort of engage and connect with, you know, with, 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 with students of, of, of the 21st century. Um, we're going to have um, an individual, a recording artist by the name of James Saxo Smith Gates coming to us virtually out of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. He's a national recording artist. People love him. We had we had him last year at our Freedom Fund. He was a huge hit. Um, we are also going to have uh, an artist with us this year uh, who's going to in real time. Uh, on on his own canvas, a very kind of freestyle type of hip hop type of way, design some beautiful art to us, uh, or, or, or design some beautiful art and present it to us. And then we're going to do something that I'm a little nervous about, but I'm hoping it's going to work. Is we're going to have a comedian this year. Ooh. 
Yes, a comedian out of Houston, Texas. His name is Blame the Comic. He's been featured on uh, some of the Saturday, Saturday, Saturday Night Live skits. Uh, he's been featured on BET Comic View. Um, and he is hilarious. Um, and so we're doing all of this because we're celebrating 50 years. This is our 50th anniversary. And so we're wanting to really go big and do it, do it really big and invite everyone that's able to both attend the reception um, from, from, from 4.30, I'm sorry, from 4, to, from 4 to 5.30. And if you can't attend the reception, we would like everyone to join us via Zoom uh, at 6.30. So it's going to be a, uh, an awesome event full of, full of so many fun activities and awards and all types of things. So. Maybe I'm the only one who doesn't know what a freedom fund is because I'm not American. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's it's not a it's it's basically it's just a fundraiser, you know. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> you know, we call it Freedom Fund in the NAACP, which is the national organization, mm. um, because you know we're always striving towards freedom and justice and, and that sort. But in essence, it's just, it's, it's it's just a well, it's not just a it's it's a large freedom it's a large fundraising. Um, event, but the proceeds from that one event um, allows us to uh, it supports the operations of of the branch. So it allows because we're not for profit organization. So mm -hmm. the monies that we receive from from Freedom Fund allows us to kind of provide service and support to our members and to the community the following year. Gotcha, perfect. If they want to learn more, what website should they go to? Uh, yes, that's right, Lynn Benton, NAACP .com. All one word. Yeah. So folk can go there and they can purchase tickets. They can kind of um, see all of the uh, uh, exciting activities we have lined up. Uh, they can also follow us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is NAACP Corvallis Albany Branch. Um, and we're also on Instagram now. Soon we'll be on Twitter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Jason, thank you so much. It's been um, such a pleasure having you on the show, um, talking to us about the different hats that you wear, um, and especially talking to us about the Freedom Fund celebration. Um, on inspiration dissemination, we do have two traditions um, at the end of every show. The first is that we ask our guests to share a piece of advice, be it with a former self or with current graduate students um, or whomever you choose. So, yeah. Give it to us. What is your piece of advice? <laughs> All right. Thank you, Lisa. So my piece of advice to current incoming graduate students, wannabe graduate students, is to never give up on your dreams. Despite whatever obstacles may be thrown your way, despite whatever hurdles you have to um, cross over, never give up on, on your dreams and that you can make it. That's awesome. Now, a second tradition and our final thing that we'll end the episode with is we always ask our guests for a song to outro you to. So, Jason, do you have a song? And uh, why did you choose that song? Oh, thank you. Uh, again, coming from the South, I was raised in a religious home. Uh, and so I love gospel music um, and I love gospel artists. Uh, and so one of my favorite songs um, is by the late Reverend Dr. James Cleveland, and it's entitled, I Don't Feel No Ways Tired. And uh, the, one of the lyrics that really stands out to me is he starts the song off by saying, I don't feel no ways tired. 
I've come too far from where I've started from. Nobody told me that the road would be easy, but I don't believe he's brought me this far to leave me. And so that lyric is so profound and inspirational to me just because of the life that I've lived up until this point. Uh, moments of feeling as if I, I'm not gonna make it, moments of feeling depressed um, and all alone. Um, and always having this sort of inner voice within me that always says to me and reminds me that regardless of whatever obstacle you are experiencing through this PhD journey and, and, and elsewhere, um, you can make it. And so I'm always reminded that uh, my maker uh, will never leave me nor forsake me. And they will always be there with me to sort of help me um, push through some very difficult, difficult times. So uh that's that's my that's my song of choice i think it's safe to say that you know we weren't able to get into all of jason's research so don't be surprised if you hear jason on the show again sometime in the future again this is inspiration dissemination you can find us every single week we interview a new graduate student and with that here is jason's song Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. The theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamath. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Holbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends. <laughs>